2: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's you need to know: state shutdown, another region of India announces a lockdown, as COVID cases total 20 million. Billionaire breakup: Bill and Melinda Gates announce their separation, and opposing arguments. Apple and Epic Games each make their case. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us on this Tuesday, where tech breakups are once again making headlines. But we aren't, of course, talking antitrust action by regulators. Nope, the sad news that Bill and Melinda Gates are separating after 27 years together. What's it going to mean for their foundation and for the global health causes in particular that they've championed? for decades now. All the details on that coming up. For now, though, no fortunes are being made or lost on Wall Street this hour. We are set for some consolidation. As you can see, some weakness there after recent gains. In a speech yesterday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell using the F word, don't panic, we're talking froth, to describe parts of the equity market while Bank of America used the phrase inching towards euphoria. Hmm. Hmm. There are other reasons for a pause here, too. U.S. factory data. Now, factories are seeing their order backlog grow, and they're also seeing inventories plunge. Now, that should be good news, except we're also seeing supply chain disruptions, spiking commodity prices, and chatter about labor market shortages, too. And, of course, that then all plays into fears of rising inflation. Now, good news from Europe today with Germany hoping to ease lockdown restrictions as France begins its gradual reopening to China and Japan, meanwhile, are closed for holidays. Hong Kong, as you can see, higher there after both UBS and Nomura produced upbeat reports on future growth for Hong Kong, which is good news. Now, the crisis in India, however, only worsening. New calls for wider economic lockdowns there as the country's COVID death toll passes another Terrible milestone. And that's where we begin today's drivers. 20 million COVID cases in India. More than 220,000 people have now lost their lives. And that includes nearly 3,500 in the past day alone. The leader of the Indian opposition wants a nationwide lockdown. The state of Bihar, the latest to announce its own restrictions. Sam kylie joins us with more. Sam, great to have you with us. You and I were talking yesterday about the need and the arrival of aid in the country, but we also were discussing how it gets to the places that it's needed. Do we have any more information on whether it's getting through to those hotspots and obviously helping to save lives?
3: Well, Julia, it's very opaque, to say the least. So if we take the example of the $100 million worth of aid, uh, being sent by the United States, it's not all here yet. It's being, it's arriving almost daily. I understand there's been a an aircraft, heavily laden aircraft, arrived today. Uh, the U.S. embassy here says simply that they handed over to the Indian authorities, and they ha- are unable to account for what happens to it next. The Indian authorities have issued a statement saying that they have, and I quote, distributed four million items of aid being delivered uh, to the country. Uh, that they are expediting aid through the customs systems and they are prioritising those states around India that have uh, a high need in rural areas and very high need Uh, in other respects now I'm in New Delhi the capital where if the need is as bad here as it is elsewhere then the the, then the catastrophe that's hit India is even worse than we imagined we are uh, in the capital city where hospital we were in a hospital as we reported we mentioned on your show yesterday Julia that 12 people died in the few hours that we were there through lack of oxygen that was a sophisticated hospital elsewhere People are dying on the streets through lack of oxygen. they're accused for oxygen tanks. We all know this. we have seen no evidence whatsoever of any foreign aid reaching anywhere inside New Delhi. We've repeatedly asked uh, both the Indian Ministry, of health, uh, the local administrations uh, to explain this uh, and indeed uh, two major donors, the US and the UK, the United Kingdom, none of them seem to be able to account for what has been a pretty effective international aid effort in terms of getting equipment and goods into India but it's very difficult to see where it's gone. That is not to say that it hasn't been distributed, merely that we are unable to find out from any of the authorities or any of the donors where specifically aid is going. But the Indians are saying that they've distributed 4 million items. I'm not sure if that means individual gloves right through to oxygen production plants. They have also said that uh, six oxygen plants have been established in Delhi. Uh, But that's it so far in terms of where this aid is going. And it's going to trouble the donors. I think that's why the donors are simply not answering questions about where this has gone because there's always a catch-22 with donations particularly ones given in the emotional heat of the horrors that are unfolding on people's television screens Julia is that donors don't want to be seen to be over accounting for it for fear of being put under pressure by their own taxpayers to stop giving until they know where it's going to end up Julia.
2: No you're right and it's a huge country and it's a complex logistical effort and it's tough to see And how to choose between huge need in various parts of the country, too. But Sam, thank you for trying and um, keep requesting information for us, please. Thank you, Sam Carly. OK, two people who've been at the forefront of the global response to COVID are Bill and Melinda Gates. Their foundation pledged more than one and a half billion dollars in response. Just a fraction of the 54 billion dollars they've donated to charity in recent years. And now they're getting divorced. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, we can talk about the, the personal side of this, sure. but, but let's talk about the foundation side. I mean, it's a shock. I think everybody was shocked because they're so synonymous with yeah. each other,
4: quite frankly, and the work that they've done over decades. And this partnership, what has been able to do has been nothing short of phenomenal. You talked about the $54 billion they've given away, but they've really remade how rich people think about philanthropy. I mean, they go at some of the thorniest, most difficult situations in the world and laser focus money and intelligence and ideas on fixing um, those problems. There are are other um, CEOs and wealthy people around the world who've said, look, Bill and Melinda Gates have figured this out. I'm just going to give my money to them, not try to start my own foundation to compete because they have found sort of the secret sauce. What they're saying, uh, and really caught a lot of people by surprise, they they will work together for their foundation, but they won't be working together as a married couple anymore. We no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in this next next phase of our lives. They are uh, saying that um, they have three children, that that is three incredible children. They've spent 27 years together. They're very proud of the work they've done in the philanthropy and will continue to do that, Julia. They just will not continue as a married couple. Yeah, I mean, they've set the
2: standard, I think, haven't they, to your point, for those with wealth all around the world and how to give it with a giving pledge, of course, is, is one of the huge issues. You know, no one ever knows what's going on in terms of Um, a marriage or a relationship. I'm not married. I don't have children. It's incredible that they've been together for 27 years. And um, you and I were discussing off air. If you have to look at a relationship and the product of that relationship and a metric for success, these guys have it.
4: I mean, a lot has been accomplished here. Three incredible children in their own words, this philanthropy, 27 years of of marriage, and a, a nest egg that is something like $130 billion. I mean, Bill Gates, of course, is the f- co-founder of Microsoft uh, all the way back in, in the 70s, and he literally put a computer on every desk uh, in this country, if not uh, around the world. You know, in, in an interview a couple of years ago, Julia, um, Melinda Gates talked about the give and take in a marriage. Let's just listen to that a little bit about how you know she's married to Bill Gates and the Bill Gates brain, uh, yet there is still this, this give and take. Listen.
0: We would go to dinner parties and when someone would throw out a question, Bill would immediately answer it. And he had, you know, the perfect whatever answer for it. And I started to realize that I wasn't using my voice as much. I wasn't speaking up or sometimes, not very often, but sometimes I would speak up and he would talk over me. And I said, you have to stop doing that because you can't either cut me off or you can't, if you think I said something that was wrong, don't correct me because everybody automatically assumes at that dinner table, you're the smartest person at the table. And so he learned and I would give him feedback and then he took him a little while and then he stopped doing it.
4: I think that's sort of a fascinating little insight <laughs> into their marriage. And in the statement they issued, they said they found they couldn't grow together as a couple anymore. And you can hear her there talking about how they were growing together. You know, he has said about her in the past that she's the one with the people skills. She is the better uh, people person. And and he always said she was a, you know, a 100 percent true partner in every sense and that she was better than he was at some things. And certainly in the philanthropy, she is known as a real force in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for really kind of, uh, you know, putting into words and crystallizing what are their goals and really working with people quite well. And they've said that partnership will continue. But you know what, I tell you what,
2: over the past 18 months with what people have been through with the pandemic, if that doesn't teach you what's important in life, what you need, that time is precious, what the future needs to look like, then I think nothing will. So I think um, it's a brave decision and we wish them both well. Yes, we do. Christine, thank you. Christine Romans. there. All right, to London now, where G7 foreign ministers are holding their first face-to-face meeting in two years. Some of the things they'll be talking about, relations with China, Russia and Iran, as well as the crisis in Myanmar. Nick Robertson is live in London with the latest. No shortage of tough topics to discuss, Nick. But I think we have to talk about the fact that for the first time in, what, 18 months, we are seeing leaders all together in one place and not doing this via Zoom or some form of other digital technology?
5: Yeah. Although when you look at the family photograph, it's not like your average family photograph at these big uh, G7 summits where everyone's standing side by side. You know, it's all very carefully, diplomatically positioned. But this one, they're standing on the stairs and everyone's got a whopping great big space between them and the next person. But that's the way they're getting this done. Uh, there have been COVID tests on site. There are strict protocols on how big the delegations can be. But it's the issues that they've had to discuss face to face. This really is teeing up uh, the leaders summit, which comes in about a month. So they're getting their ideas together on China, on Afghanistan, on Iraq, on Syria, on Libya, on Myanmar, on a whole host of issues. And China's the one that's had the sort of most time devoted to it. Uh, And to that point, they've actually invited along the G7, of course, United States, Canada, Japan, France, the UK, Germany, Italy. But they've invited along nations with a big stake in in the Indo-Pacific as well, like India, like Australia, like South Korea. Also, South Africa has been in invited. uh, The Brunei foreign minister is there representing the ASEAN nations. So this really is an effort the way that they 're describing it to bring together countries that value democracy to try to find a way to head off the threats of countries like China like Russia that would undermine these democratic values and principles by abuse of human rights, by theft of intellectual uh, property by uh, you know cyber espionage by manipulating elections, all these things that go on. this is a way to try to find a to find a collective way to deal with that. But underlying all that, of course, COVID is a debate and COVID is an issue, and it's how to come back better, greener after COVID. The climate issue is a big one, but also how to get ready for the next pandemic to prepare for that. So so it's a host of issues that they're discussing here, but but underneath it all, um, it's happening in the face of the pandemic, in the face of what's happening in India. um, And they hope that if this is a success, in these few days then the summit in Cornwall with the real leaders that can also go off with these COVID protocols can go off well.
2: Yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, to your point, a lot of important discussions to take place too. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 23 people have been killed after an overpass carrying a subway train collapsed in Mexico City, sending train cars onto the traffic below surveillance video caught the moment it happened late monday evening dozens of people are being treated in hospital cnn's matt rivers is on the scene and he joins us now live from mexico city matt great to have you with us i mean, clearly we're interested in what on earth happened here i believe it was a relatively new piece of, of the subway system but what do we know about those that were injured and their status at this moment
1: So at this point, uh, as you mentioned right off the top there, Julia, 23 people confirmed to have lost their lives as a result of this incident. 79 people have now been hospitalized as a result of this. Unfortunately, we know uh, that uh, included in the death toll, as well as people who were hospitalized, some with serious injuries, are children. Uh, Children are included in both of those figures. In terms of what happened here That's gonna be the big question moving forward over the coming days and weeks. What we know is that it was about 10.30 p.m. local time uh, yesterday evening here in Mexico City when that section of this overpass that is just behind me, you can see it's quite a large overpass. It was built within the last uh, 10 years or so when a section of it simply just collapsed suddenly uh, and without warning, taking those two subway train cars down with it and ultimately uh, landing on at least one car Uh, that was driving along the road here uh, underneath. Hundreds of rescue personnel responded very quickly. Uh, They were able to get a lot of people that were trapped out relatively quickly, uh, but unfortunately they weren't able to save everyone. We actually saw several bodies being removed from the debris within the last several hours. Uh, But the concerning part about all of this, uh, beyond just the deaths and the injuries, would also be the fact that many people saw this coming. This line was built by the Mexico City government uh, and it was inaugurated back in 2012. But in 2014, there were structural problems identified with this line. Uh, More than half of the stations along this line were closed for structural repairs. There was damage during the 2017 earthquake. So this is a line that has uh, has had problems before, Julia, and so many people in this neighborhood and all across the city really, because this is huge news, in in mexico right now are saying how did this happen something clearly went wrong we don't know what went wrong but there was a catastrophic collapse here uh and so clearly something was at fault and that's going to be what investigators are going to try and determine you know over the next several days and, and weeks and maybe even months
2: matt rivers thank you for that update there Okay, so to come on First Move, the Indian pharma firm that says it's just weeks away from requesting approval for the country's second domestically developed vaccine. And Apple has, quote, total control over iPhone users. So says Epic Games CEO. More of that trial coming up on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story as a second wave of COVID-19 infections paralyzes India. One of its leading pharma firms is racing to find solutions. zydus Skadilla, also known as Kilida Healthcare, has a vaccine in late stage trials. It hopes to apply for emergency authorization later this month. It also has a drug to treat moderate cases of COVID-19 which was granted emergency use authorization just last week. And joining us now is Charville Patel. He's managing director of Zydus Group. Charville, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about that antiviral agent first. Virafin, I believe is the name. Just explain how it works.
6: So thank you, Julia, for having me on. Uh, So I'm very excited with the uh, results of our clinical study that just got over and we got emergency use. So, you know, interferons are the uh, naturally occurring proteins in the human body. And for any kind of virus infection, the first line of defense is for the body to produce interferons, which removes the uh, stops the virus replication and allows the immune system to remove the virus. I think this we could prove both in our in vitro and in vivo studies. So we did an in vitro study which showed that this is significantly more potent than any of the antivirals that are currently used for the treatment of COVID. So that was the one first positive thing. This treatment has always been used for hepatitis B and C, which are other viruses. So we knew that this works against multiple viruses. Same is what we could prove when we did a patient study in India in moderate cases where we showed that. We, re- we reduced the virus replication and removal by showing RT-PCR negative in eight days. We showed a two-point improvement on the WHO ordinance scale of improvement, which is significant. We showed less oxygenation requirement for the patients who were taking virafin and also other symptoms were uh, reduced and the, the number of days of hospitalization was reduced. All of that was done against standard of care and in India standard of care includes treatments which are steroids, maybe remdesivir and others and we have cohort analysis of against all of these with conjunction with virafin and use independently and all in all in all of the data either we are equivocal or statistically significantly better. So that gives us the confidence that use of this in early treatment can help patients a lot and the beauty of this product is that it's a single dose. Uh, and uh, which helps in terms of convenience of dosing, uh, and it can be given by any medical practitioner.
2: Wow. Okay, so it stops the shedding of the virus. It helps the body, the body's own immune system, fight back and protect itself as well. Just give us a sense, if you can, how quickly, once somebody's been diagnosed with COVID, how quickly, what's the window that they get this vaccine? And then I guess the most important question is manufacturing. How quickly can you produce this and start helping people and and saving lives as soon as possible.
6: So, so the patient, the trial that we had conducted was on moderate patients who were already in the hospital. Right. So I would assume that they were at least three to five days post infection. Uh, and the and you know it being a very strong antiviral agent, and we know that the virus is active for the first eight to ten days. The 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 way of treatment this would be that as soon as possible one should. Uh, use this because it is an antiviral agent and le- using this later has lesser benefit versus using it earlier when the virus is not replicated enough and not destroyed the epithelial cells and created other problems. And the second part to your question related to the capacity. So, you know, it's a, it's a biological product. We've been, we have been manufacturing this, but we have significantly put in capacities and investment to scale this up. We are going to be making it available immediately for 50,000 patients in this month. Uh, but in the following month onward, we will believe we can reach up to 10 lakh patients or 1 million patients per month.
2: And you can achieve that in the next couple of months as you ramp up production.
6: Yeah, our hope is by end of June, we can achieve a 1 million per month uh, uh, run rate.
2: Yeah, I mean I compare it to the number of cases out there and it's it feels like a drop in the ocean but I guess if you're giving it to, to the most sick patients if you can catch them early enough then that's the important part. Let's talk about vaccines as well because you obviously have and they're in stage 3 or phase 3 trials with your own vaccine candidate and we're expecting results fingers crossed this month. What can you tell us just even in these early stages about the efficacy even if it's only with regards to phase 2? <laughs>
6: So I think this has been a very gratifying project for all of us. You know, This is one vaccine where Zydus has developed this from scratch. So we have been doing all of the technology development all the way to scale up, all the way to now clinical trial. I'm also very happy to say that this is by far the largest clinical trial done in our country uh, where we have covered 28,000 volunteers for the, for the administration of this uh, vaccine. So it is by far one of the largest trials that we have done. And we have been uh, good on recruitment. So in spite of vaccines being there, they have people have shown faith in terms of coming up for the clinical work on this. So I thank everybody for doing that. But more importantly, I think what we like about the vaccine is that it it is, uh, it is a very, the platform, it's an extremely safe platform, well-established. Uh, we use don't use any other viral vectors which can cause other kinds of infections. So this vaccine is very safe in terms of multiple dosing. It's, it's stable at 25 degrees for at least four months. So, you know, in a country like India is important. We have gone through multiple cycles and it's shown good data in terms of it not uh, get going to waste. The again, the beauty of the vaccine is, will be that it is a needle free uh, dosing. So it, it takes away a lot of fears for young people and people who have phobia with related to needles and vaccination. So again, it, it helps on that. And we have a whole new technology to deliver the vaccine for that. So all of that has been good. Our phase two efficacy, you know, phase two, you don't really see efficacy, but you see immunogenicity. We showed comparable immunogenicity to most of the peers that are there in the approved vaccines that are there in the country. Efficacy is something that we can only get to see post phase three, which we're confident of that in May, we can achieve that uh, event number. Uh, and, And as soon as we do that, we will file for our emergency use authorization.
2: And what about in terms of uh, fighting variants that we're seeing in India? Are you also focused on the ability to adapt this, if necessary, to fight specific variants? Or can you tell us anything about it? I know you're saying you can't give efficacy numbers, but the sense that it can fight the variants that we're already
6: seeing. So again, uh, that's a very important question. So I think two important things. One is it, I believe that in this uh, clinical study, this will be the most truly represented clinical study because we have uh, you know, variants of critical nature in India and multiple of them. And all our event data will be a subset of many of these events of uh, in, uh, infections happening. So I believe this would be one of the true reflections of how this vaccine can work against a plethora of uh, variants that are there in the country what is also good about this is that it definitely neutralizes many of the uh, of the viruses that are there but more importantly this platform is very scalable and very changeable to the new variant so in fact against the 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 british variant the south african variant the brazilian as well as the new indian mutant variant we have already finished three uh, upgradations to the uh, platform we have already finished animal studies on them Uh, So, you know, we would be able to, not in a long time, but in a very short period of time, repurpose the vaccine with the new variants, whichever become dominant.
2: We keep our fingers crossed. Uh, Shava, very quickly, another vitally important question, cost of both the antiviral and this vaccine. Can you give us just a comparison or a sense of of how much this will cost? Because clearly there will be, I'm sure people in India watching this and just wondering how they get access whether they will be able to get access?
6: So, yeah, that's that's a very pertinent question to our country. Access and affordability is supermount in terms of how uh, one can get to use the medicines. So on our Verafin, we have committed and promised that to any of the standard of care, it will be substantially cheaper. It will be at least less than half or one-fifth of the current treatments that are there for patients who are taking remdesivir and hospitalization kind of effort. So we believe that we will bring it at very affordable pricing. And as I said, again, it's a single dose. With respect to the vaccine, definitely our, our aim is that we will bring it at an affordable price. If you look at our track record in the last uh, one year, whether it was hydroxychloroquine, we were the largest manufacturers and distributors of hydroxychloroquine, we brought it below the government price it was remdesivir we are today the lowest priced remdesivir in the country by a magnitude of threefold. Uh, wow. if you look at dexamethasone which is one of the steroids that is used it is the cheapest steroidal uh, corticosteroid available in the country so we we will definitely work on it to make sure we make it affordable but obviously uh, it has to make sense in terms of us being able to recoup all our investment
2: i understand you give us hope, though, Charville. I'll let you go because uh, you and your team have a lot of work to do, I know. Charville Patel, Managing Director of Zydus Group. Thank you for all your work. OK, you're watching First Move. More to come. <music> Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street. And word from the NYSE that all traders can now return to the floor if they're vaccinated, perhaps contributing to reopening hopes In the United States, the Wall Street Bulls, however, taking a pause after recent record runs. As you can see there, we are lower in early trade this morning. European airline stocks are gaining altitude, though, as the EU makes new moves to open its doors to vacationers this summer. Vaccinated vacationers, that's a tough one to say. Word, too, that the number of U.S. air passengers are at fresh 13-month highs. But once again, context is everything. Air travel still some 35 percent below peak levels in the United States, and um, a pretty cute visitor if we have pictures of this, I think Baby Yoda actually run, look, now that's cute. That may be the best ring bell ever. There we go, Baby Yoda, may the force be with you. All right, another bite of the Apple day 2 of the epic Apple Apple trial set to begin here in the United States Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney is expected to return to the witness stand a day after he strongly criticized Apple over its rules regarding the App Store at the center the core of this lawsuit the 30% slice <laughs> the Apple charges developers on sales made through apps. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Sorry, Claire, I couldn't help myself. No more puns, I promise. Um, it was quite fascinating, though, to, to listen to what the Epic Games CEO was saying because he was painting this picture of Apple having this huge hold, this monopoly. And of course, under US law, having a monopoly is not illegal. It's how you utilize that. And if you keep out competition and that ultimately harms the consumer, he's got a case to make.
7: Yeah, this is really the center of this. And what we saw uh, yesterday, Julia, uh, along with quite a few internal emails that both sides produced that, frankly, didn't make either side look very good, was this sort of framing exercise. The question of whether Apple's App Store is a market in its own right, or is it part of a broader market? Now, obviously, Epic wants to make the the argument that, that the App Store is a market in its own right, and therefore Apple shouldn't be allowed to set all the rules. They produced a number of uh, of different internal emails, one in particular from uh, Apple executive Eddie Q, where he talks about getting people hooked into the ecosystem so they never leave. This gets back to the idea of abuse of monopoly power that Epic is trying to prove. Apple, of course, says, no, that's not the case. They are part of a broader market, particularly in gaming. They made the point that consumers have a lot of choice about where they go uh, to, to play their games. They pointed out that, that Epic uh, pays a 30 percent commission or thereabouts to have its games on consoles like Xbox uh, and PlayStation, though Tim Sweeney made the point that that's a different business model, uh, and Apple, of course, also saying that 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 this is you know this is this is really of, of Epic's own making. The way they came this whole case came about, the PR campaign uh, of last summer, using that to undermine them. So much more to come, really, but expect this framing exercise to remain, remain at the centre of the
2: arguments here. Hashtag Free fortnight. Do you think that mm-hmm. PR campaign? Backfires, Claire.
7: I think it's a
2: risk. Uh,
7: it was certainly a risky move from from Epic to do that last summer, to basically publicly go out there and breach the terms of the contract that they had already signed. With Apple, and Apple is going to continue to use this against them. If you look at the opening statements that the slides that that Apple produced yesterday, there was another email, this one from Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic, to, to a Microsoft executive in early August. He says Epic has plans for August that will provide an extraordinary opportunity to highlight the value proposition of consoles in PCs in contrast to mobile platforms. Apple making the argument that Epic was willing to deceive Apple but give Microsoft a heads up they are trying to paint this as a sort of profit move from epic whereas epic says this isn't about profits this is about getting apple to change its ways. so i think look, this was very risky apple is going to continue probably to use this to
2: undermine epic as this trial continues watch this space please sebastian thank you for that okay after the break we've heard it all before your call is important to us but is it after the break message bird on a mission to end hanging around on hold It was once worked out that America spends 900 million hours a year on hold. And for the average person, that's 43 days wasted in their lifetime. Well, my next guest thought there has to be a faster way to get good customer service, considering how many communication tools are available. Now, with big brand clients like Disney and JP Morgan, MessageBird has a strong presence in Europe, Latin America and Southeast Asia. And it's been using Series C funding to go on a bit of an acquisition spree. Robert, this is the CEO of MessageBird, and he joins us now. Robert, great to have you on the show. So you facilitate better communications between businesses and their customers, but you're also trying to do it in the most efficient way possible.
8: Yes. And hi, Julia. Nice, nice to meet hi. you. Um, and I, I couldn't have done the intro better myself. So I think <laughs> you explained it very well. Um, look, at MessageBird, we want to make talking to a business feel as easy and natural as talking to your friends and, and family. So we let like consumers, essentially all of us, talk to a business on the channel that they prefer, which could be things like Instagram or WhatsApp or SMS or email or, on, or even being on the phone. But it's right. Essentially, our premise is we want to make communication way more efficient and want to stop people being on hold for bad customer service.
2: How easy is that for uh, a, a company to set up a situation where they have, okay, we're less efficient at this moment communicating via WhatsApp, maybe it's easier to send an email, maybe it's easier to send by text? Because I was just trying to think of the number of companies that I interact with that actually send you a message by text and probably post, like UPS is the most obvious example, very few.
8: It's true, and, and and that's very unfortunate. And this is essentially exactly what we're trying uh, what yeah. we're trying to fix. So today, most of the interactions are still happening on email and voice, um, which isn't a very uh, efficient way to communicate with a business. And we just want to live in a world where you can text with a business. And that's essentially <laughs> what we're trying to make happen. Um, and we're providing, uh, so we're building the technology on the back end to provide that to to, to businesses. Because you're right, it's very complicated and part of the reason why we're not able to text with businesses today, that has a lot to do with their uh, internal infrastructure and backend technology that doesn't allow them to do that. So we're essentially selling that technology to the business so that with message birds, they can now talk to their customers on any channel and they don't have to be on hold.
2: I mean, it makes sense to me. Give me that world as soon as possible, please. Um, You mentioned that actually communicating. (laughs) You're working on it. You mentioned that... email actually is a a less efficient way of communicating. And yet when I look at, and I mentioned it in the intro, um, your acquisition trail, SparkPost, predictive email intelligence platform. I mean, I can see that this gives you a foothold in the United States, but there will be people going, hang on a second, aren't we trying to move away from communications on email? Are you saying here actually you still see email as being a crucial part of the way that emails interact, uh, uh, companies interact with their customers?
8: It is, Um, Mm. so email is still, I mean, today it's the most important channel that people communicate with businesses on. And we think email is very powerful also for the future. There's new technologies coming out on email like AMP, which makes it much more like an application. But what we're after here is actually very simple. I mean, first of all, we're now the largest business to consumer interaction company in the world. We do over four and a half trillion interactions to customers and think about that, that's a thousand billion. So these are a lot of interactions that we're sort of doing, which I think is very powerful to to our business. Email still being the dominant way we talk to businesses today makes it super important. I think the challenge is, how do we get an email that really provides the right context so we find it valuable? I think from a consumer perspective, we think about email as something that lands in your spam box, and we think about email as something that provides a ton of value to you. It just needs to have the right message. So that's what we help businesses do. Talk on WhatsApp, talk on the phone, talk on email. But it's really about the context and making things more efficient. That's the opportunity we're after.
2: We've spoken to Twilio, which when I thought about what your business does and uh, the sort of direction that you're heading in, particularly as you enter the United States, that's probably your most fierce competition. What makes you better than them, particularly as you tackle a new market like the United States? Or is the market simply big enough to, to have more?
8: Who's Twilio again? <laughs>
2: um,
8: sorry, I'll, I won't be. Look, as <laughs> no, a company- you can leave it there company, if you want to. <laughs> I, 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 I would almost leave it there. No, look, as a company, I think, and look, I, you, you'll probably hear a lot of founders say this, but like we focus on our customers. Our customers, they have all the answers that we would ever need. They tell us what they would like from us, how they want to make things more efficient. And you know what? They pay our bills. So from our perspective, looking at our competitors has never been a strategy that we've done. So I don't know what our competitors do, including the one you just mentioned, but we're very confident about um, how we solve problems for customers and, and they love us. So I, I think we're good.
2: They who shall not be named Harry Potter. Um, one exactly. of the things that I noticed, and it's a sideline to your business, <laughs> but I do think it's a very important one as we go forward is your work from anywhere policy and i just wanted to touch upon this because i do think this is fascinating it opens up a global workforce and i wonder particularly for tech companies but for those where you've got employees that can work anywhere in the world why is this important
8: so there's many different reasons why we think it's important so let me t- let me let, let me touch on a few i mean let's start off with the fact that you know, COVID has changed a lot of things, but I think one way it's accelerated the need for all of us to be able to do things more in a dig- in a digital world. Um, I think forcing us to have our employees be at home has made us rethink the way we want to do employment at MessageBird for the future. And one of the things that still mind boggles me, if I look back at it, and I am just as responsible as everybody else, the whole notion of an employee being on a train a bus or a car for an hour to work and then an hour back that's two hours out of your day that you could be spending with your friends and family so talk about you know wasting time for bad customer support what about wasting time on traveling to your place of business so from our perspective we want our employees to be able to work at an office or work from home as they please and we will facilitate uh uh uh, both but we think that's very very important in terms of the time and work work life balance that they have but also let alone the environmental impact, right? Like it, this is a much more, I would say, cleaner way to, to run employment. Um, and it's really of this time and world. P- people want to have a better work-life balance. Sometimes they want to go to the office. Sometimes they want to stay at home and focus. We think this is a really, really good thing. Um, and we, we're excited to support it and have birds join us all across the world from any country i think we now have like 50 countries but we're excited to get to like 180 which i think is the total countries they are i'd love to have an employee in every single country in the world that's a true <laughs> globalization right there
2: now that's ambition i have 10 more questions for you so come back soon please robert viz the ceo of messagebird great to chat today thank you okay after the break in his final report for first move my heart is broken john defteris on saudi aramco's bumper earnings Oil, miss you. J.D., yeah, that's it. Higher oil prices help fuel first quarter earnings at the oil giant, Saudi Aramco, with clear signs of energy demand soaring. The chief executive says better times are coming. John Defteris joins me now. John, that is good news. And these were what profits that were 30% above what we saw this time last year, a relief, I think, if nothing else.
9: Yeah, I would say that, Julia, 30% profit is nothing to sneeze at, coming in at $21.7 billion. And in fact, the CEO, Amin Nasr, was saying he has reasons to be more optimistic going forward, although he says there are some headwinds that that exist. Uh, Demand today is still about 5% below where we were pre-pandemic. We were almost at 100 million barrels a day in the third quarter of 2019, uh, and we're not there now. So this is a kingdom that's being cautious. And what do I mean by that? The Minister of Energy, Abdulaziz bin Salman, working with Amin Nasser, cutting back production. Uh, The first quarter production was at 8.6 million barrels a day, and they have capacity for 12. So they're taking oil off the market, along with the OPEC Plus players, uh, Julia, And as a result here, we see prices hovering between $65, $67, $68 a barrel. So obviously their income is improving. Uh, So they're hoping that demand in the second half of the year will pick up. And the big question for Saudi Aramco, as you know, is what happens in the future? What are the the plans of the the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to try to sell another 1% stake? Uh, The two leading candidates are, are big oil importers in China and India. Bokesh Ambani of Reliance, who has the largest refinery in the world, uh, in discussions with Saudi Aramco as well, as well as CNPC of China. So this is not gonna happen imminently. They're saying maybe one to two years. That was the latest guidance from the Crown Prince uh, MBS. But if they can make it happen, it could raise another $25 billion. The danger here, longer term, is leaning too much on Saudi Aramco to raise money for the state investment fund, the PIF, and also to help in the diversification. It is an energy company, it's done other things in the past, but you don't wanna weight it down as we go forward here with the 2030 plan of the Crown Prince, Julia.
2: It's such a great point. And you also provided me with another follow-up question, as you always do to make me look smart. And then when I ask you that question, you always say, Julia, that's a fantastic thing to be asking because you're so graceful and you are amazing. <laughs> and our viewers are probably not aware, but that was your last chat with me on First Move because you're leaving after 25 years at CNN. And I am truly, truly heartbroken. As is Richard Quest, who we tracked down on the streets of New York City because he also wanted to come and talk because, you know, the three of us, I've not been here this long, that long, but the three of us have had some real fun. And JD, you are amazing. I have never worked with someone so graceful, so smart and intelligent, so patient and so funny, and we love you. Richard?
5: Johnny D, Johnny D, there's nobody else, (laughs) there's nobody else who could get me out of the gym and uh, away from my workout other than to say, look, doing battle with you and Julia at Davos or on oil, where I constantly have to put you right, Johnny D, on these issues. But what I am, I, who am I <laughs> Who am I? going to play with once you've gone? And we're going to miss you tremendously. You are unique. And when they made you, they broke the mold.
9: Well, that's a great compliment from both of you. You guys are surprising me here today. I'm not expecting any of this. I thought it was a straight hit on Aramco and I thought it would be oh. fitting to finish on oil coverage, consi- considering <laughs> I cover it half the time. <laughs> Uh, being based in the Middle East. But uh, very quickly, I have nothing to complain about, actually. 25 years at CNN, 35 years on air. You both know that's a long time. Uh, Traveled 70 countries. Uh, But the family has to take priority at this stage, and i got to reunite with them in London. So I had a fantastic time. Actually interned at CNN in 1983 and 84. That's how long the relationship goes back. So thanks a lot for underscoring it. Yeah, it's been a great time.
2: Can we ask you what you're going to do next? Because you inspire me. I know you inspire my whole team. I I will say it again: you're always happy. You're always innovative. You're always very caring. What are you going to do next? Can we ask?
6: Uh, You
9: can ask. I don't have the the (laughs) complete chapter written just yet, Uh, Julia. How's that? Uh, But it is uh, taking shape. How do you like this? I am. I'm going to be doing some teaching for one, some consulting for another. Uh, and working with an energy think we, tank, of course, because I cover energy uh, so much. So right. I look forward to that. And John. you'll love this. I've never taken a summer off since I was in university, and I'm taking a summer <laughs> off. How do you like to have to go to Italy with the family? So it's not bad. John, John, can you just
5: reassure us that we have not heard the last of you? Because that's what we both want to know. We want to make sure to we're ask. still going to be around. <laughs>
9: I'll be around. I'm in London. I'm not very hard to find either. So if you need a, a special energy analyst to come in, Richard or Julia, I'm a, just knock yeah. on the door or give me a call. Yeah. I'm around. Uh, and the, the final thing, Richard's been here many times. I know Julia visited Dubai last year. I mean, I came uh, right after the Arab Spring. I had a fantastic decade here uh, in the UAE and covering the region. We've had a lot of stories ever since. Uh, so it's a good place to be for the last decade of a career. And my longest stint ever in my 35 years was here in the Middle East, so it was fascinating.
2: I mean, you, you interned in LA, you anchored in New York, in London, in Abu Dhabi. I mean, this has been an incredible journey. CNN, I would not be what it is without you, John.
9: Yeah, yeah. Wow, very flattering, but thank you very much. It, the brand is big, it was great to work for it. Let's put it that way.
2: Favorite moment?
9: Oh, gosh, Julia, I I don't think we have that much time, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, A lot of good, fantastic interviews uh and well i'll share one tale that most viewers don't know but the piano bar in davos is pretty good oh. Oh. Julia singing with oh. richard quest and john Deftarius. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> the last davos we were at that, how's that there must john. Uh, there must yeah. be
5: video there must be video somewhere of you in the <laughs> piano bar that we can
2: blackmail with you for the foreseeable future <laughs> and me refusing to sing the last one we were at despite exactly. your encouragement jd i will get there at some point i'm speaking for richard and for all of cnn when i say we will miss you and from the bottom of my heart we thank you for your expertise for the insight the wisdom everything that you have Thanks. provided over the years good luck sending you huge kisses we love you jd you are yeah, the best yeah. you thank truly are. you
9: very much Thank, Thank you, you both, yeah. Thanks a lot, Julia. Thanks. And Richard, uh, we'll see Lovely. you soon. Yeah, take care. Thank
2: Thanks. Okay. Thanks, guys. Go back to the gym, Richard. That's it for <laughs> the <this> show. <laughs> Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next.